suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. That shows that Christianity is true. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And today we are going to be speaking with a special guest. We have Professor Ted Wright. Professor Ted Wright is waiting in the wings. But before we go to him, we're going to be going over a couple of news items. There was some interesting news from Science News. Uh, This is from a researcher by the name of Elizabeth Brannan from Duke University. And she says that there's not much difference between pigeons and monkeys when it comes to the brain function. So they did a test. This is very interesting. They did a test where they had monkeys try to learn to count to three by arranging pictures of objects that were one and two picture, a, a picture of two items and then a picture of three items to arrange them in order. So pretty simple test. And guess what? Pigeons could do that as well, if not better, than monkeys. <laughs> so it says, here's a quote, pigeons have matched primates in a test of learning an abstract concept similar to counting. <laughs> and, and this is despite the supposed millions of years of divergent evolution. Does that mean we evolved from pigeons now? Yeah, well, I, maybe we'll have to change the tree of life. <laughs> so then there was another, this is a kind of a matching uh, study. This was published in Animal Cognition, the journal Animal Cognition by uh, Dr. Volker Deek. And he's from the University of St. Andrews. He published how he observed a bear in the wild using a tool. So, you know, this is, of course... For evolution, it's a big sign of intelligence, and primates are supposed to be really particularly good at this, using tools. And so, apparently now, it turns out that lower animals can use tools, too. And so, this is a, was an example of a bear using a tool to clean his teeth. Actually, he selected a specific rock that, had, that was shaped a certain way and had barnacles uh, just on the right position, and he used it to uh, clean his face. It was shaped like a toothbrush? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So then there was another study. These are kind of all related studies. These are this one was from February uh, this year, and it showed that dogs perform better than chimps. So this was a study where they had the animals retrieve objects that were pointed at. So when you point at an object just to get the animal to retrieve it, dogs do much better than that, despite the fact that chimpanzees have fingers and dogs don't. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Dogs are good at retrieving things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) But don't try it with your cat. It won't work. No, no. (laughs) This was a study done by K.C. Kirchhofer, and it just, you know, brings to mind, I don't know if you heard about that Project NIM, 
Did you hear about that? Uh, I don't think so. They were going to raise a chimpanzee like a human being, and it was supposed to be able to learn to speak that way. Uh-huh. So, of course, it was a, a grand failure. So, because it takes more than just being raised in a human family to be a human. I thought you were going to tell me that the ch chimp did learn to speak, and now he has his own show on MSNBC or something. <laughs> yes, it's called Irreligiosophy. <laughs> Ooh, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> you know, I, in past shows, we've talked about the stupidity of chimpanzees, because, you know, all we hear about in the press is how smart they are. So I remember back an article that talked about the chimp's awareness of danger. So a chimp can be walking along and discover the dead bodies of other chimpanzees that have been eaten by leopards, right? So freshly killed chimpanzees. And the chimp will, will not realize that there's a leopard nearby. Hmm. It actually has to see the leopard before it's uh, alert at all, that it has any idea that there's any danger. Okay. So, uh, let's see. Then there was some more studies. This is, so well, speaking about chimpanzees, how about ninth graders <laughs> on a different topic? Well, I guess it's, it's actually we could make this transition. Instead of teaching chimps to be human, how about the way the world, the secular left, tries to teach humans to be animals? Okay. <laughs> this was a study about the effectiveness of abstinence education, and it was a study by Montclair State University on 1,100 ninth graders, and the study was done by Lisa Lieberman and Hyans, and it demonstrated the positive effects of abstinence training. So, and, you know, I think we all know the importance of the Christian worldview. If you just follow the Christian worldview, good things wind up happening to you, and if you are going to ignore the rules and the morals that God set down, bad things happen, right? Like if you avoid abstinence, you wind up with fatherless families, poverty, and we've, you know, many times documented some of the studies that go into this in more detail, child abuse, neglect, delinquency, uh, children that are forced into daycare, and then you have all the problems from the studies that show how bad daycare is. I came across one recently uh, and this is mentioned in this a book called Doing Time, What It Really Means to Grow Up in Daycare by <laughs> early education expert May Sauber. And just study after study shows the problems with daycare. And here's a specific one that compared children who had more than 30 hours of daycare to those who had had less than 10 hours of daycare. And they were three times more aggressive and disruptive behavior and they measured stress hormones, and the stress hormones were much, much higher every time that they were in daycare, but not when they were at home. I like the title of that book, Doing Time, Referring to Daycare. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, oh, you know what? We forgot to do the quote of the day. Oh, okay. So this is from Henry Ward Beecher, and he says, Whatever is only almost true is quite false, and among the most dangerous of errors— because being so near truth, it is the more likely to lead astray. Uh-huh. Quote Henry Ward Beecher. No C.S. Lewis this week, huh? No, we, uh, we ran through, what did we do, like 20 in a row. <laughs> C.S. Lewis. Well, can so, we help it if he has a lot of good quotes? 
Exactly. It's not my fault. What can I say? Well, let's bring on Ted Wright. Ted Wright is professor of Old Testament with a degree of archaeology. Professor Wright, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Not a problem. We're happy to have you. I got to meet Professor Wright up at the conference. It was the National Apologetics Conference this year. Yes. You are uh, executive director of Cross-Examined. Yes, cross-examined.org. Yes, that's uh, Frank Turek's organization, right? That is correct, yes. Tell us a little bit about your work there. Um, yeah, Frank and I have been good friends for about 15 years, and um, anyway, to make a really long story longer or shorter, <laughs> depending how you look at it, um, we, I've been working on and on, off and on with Frank for quite a while on little projects, and um, it was kind of a natural result of working with Frank that he eventually asked me to come on as his executive director uh, this past August, and uh, so I've been I've been doing that with him, um, speaking and doing a lot of the behind the scenes work at Cross Examined Ministry. Um, and if the listeners know, we can, they can check out our website at crossexamined.org.org. And uh, Frank speaks around the country. Many people have heard his uh, seminar, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Maybe they've read the book with uh, Dr. Norm Geisler. Uh, it's a great, great uh, uh, book on apologetics. And uh, so we, we're doing a, doing a lot of work there, and it's keeping me busy. Wonderful. Before we get into our topic, and for our listeners, we thought we would bring up the idea of archaeology and its relation to the Christmas story. So Professor Wright is has a degree in archaeology, and so this is going to be an exciting topic. But I was interested, Professor Wright, because in your bio it says that you you were on the History Channel in their, on their series called Mankind. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about that appearance? And Yeah, it's kind of, it was an interesting, interesting thing how that came about. Um, uh, originally, they had uh, had asked Frank if he would like to be on the show, and Frank didn't feel comfortable answering some of the questions that dealt with history. So he he asked me if would I consider going on, and I said I, I would love to. It'd be great, but you know there are, there are people who are probably much more you know recognizable than myself. And so um, anyway, the uh, producers ended up contacting me and say we really we, we really would like you to, to appear on the show. So back in April of this year, I uh, flew to New York City, and they interviewed me for about three hours. And uh, the, the nature of the documentary, I, th- I think that the documentary was already shot and that the expert opinions, the, the talking heads on the show, uh, were going to come in and basically throw some illumination uh, historically, archaeologically, on the story of human, the human race. So what they asked me to do is they asked me to comment on Christianity and the Roman Empire and how Christianity uh, you know, thrived during the Roman persecutions and, and also with uh, the conversion of Saint Con- or Constantine the Great. Um, as well as uh, the Crusades and other other issues that dealt with the Christianity and history. So it was really interesting to get to take a part of that. Oh, that sounds exciting. So this wasn't really a kind of giving our side of some of the controversial issues. It was just more or less giving a Christian perspective of some of the things that everybody pretty much agrees upon. Is yes, that how it turned that's out? That's what I thought. I initially thought that when, when they interviewed me that, that I was going to be giving an opposing position on you know the, any of these particular questions. And uh, what, once I've watched the show, and actually it's still going on, many of the listeners probably have been watching on the History Channel, and it's really, you know, it's really well done. It's a very well done documentary, but... Uh, 
the the basically the storyline was already kind of written, and so they they have their their own narrative that they're going by. And uh, I didn't really get to chance to interact with any. It really wasn't in the form of a dialogue or debate format, which I wish it would have been because I could have uh, given some good perspective on some really important historical questions. But that wasn't the case. But hopefully, I got some good truth in there uh, a, a little bit as much as I could. You know, when they did ask me the questions. Wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're speaking with Professor Ted Wright about the history of the Christmas story. Before we jump into it, let me remind people that you can check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. That's our website. That's evidence4faith.com, where we have archived shows. If you like podcasts, you can find our podcasts on iTunes or on the Android system. You can find us at Double Twist. And be sure and check out ratiochristi.org also. Well, Professor Wright, let's jump into our topic today. We're going to talk about the Christmas story and some of the archaeological evidences that support it. But let's back up a little bit and start out with the family of God, the chosen people, the Israelites are so much in the news and reported by critics of Christianity that maybe there wasn't even such a people, at least not until long after the stories in the Old Testament were written. And and you're a professor of Old Testament, so does the archaeology really support the presence of Israel in Egypt, say? Yes, it does. Um, both directly and indirectly, there's actually a big debate that is currently ongoing in um, in their Eastern archaeology and in their Eastern history. Uh, before I, before I get into that, though, let me just remind the listeners that uh, the Christmas story doesn't necessarily begin in in the Gospels, although that's where we read about it. It begins in the Old Testament, and uh, the prediction of the Messiah, Christ. Uh, was all the way back in the pages of the Old Testament, and specifically in prophecies that uh, date thousands of years, hundreds of years, you know, at minimum, uh, before Christ was born, in particular Isaiah, the prophecies of Isaiah, as well as Micah 5.2, predicting where he'd be born, uh, specifically, though, to a people that, you know, the Messiah was predicted to come to a people, the people called Israel, and the debate that's uh, kind of um, going on today among scholars in the Old Testament is uh, whether or not Israel was an actual people uh, there are actually two schools of thought on the question of ancient Israel. Uh, one school of thought are, are called, uh, funny enough, they're called biblical minimalists, and they believe that the Old Testament contains basically, uh, most, most of it is myth or mythological. Uh, so whenever it talks about Israel or a kingdom of Israel, uh, it's pretty much invented or it's made up. So it's a very, very skeptical view of the Old Testament. And the other view is called biblical maximalism, which, of course, you would, you would expect to, um, to understand as a view that the Bible contains, uh, you know, a grain of history, that there is a historical kernel of truth to it. Uh, but as an inerrantist, as someone who believes the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, um, I would even go even further than the maximalist position to say that uh, that even every every word, you know, because Second Timothy three sixteen tells us the, the scriptures and inspired Word of God, that everything is uh, is accurate in, in the way it's it's presented. Now, how do we figure that out archaeologically? Um, but again, the debate rages. Uh, so, where do we locate Israel 
in the ancient in the ancient record. Um, of course, in the Old Testament, Israel begins uh, with Abraham uh, as a nation. God calls this man named Abraham out to become a great nation. And uh, you know, we we know the Old Testament story. Of course, he, he has sons, and they uh, end up growing a large family. They ended up in Egypt because of Joseph, and uh, and then they have the Exodus. And the question of the Exodus really really revolves around not not whether or not there was an Exodus. It revolves around the timing of the Exodus. Uh, there are there are actually a couple of views on the different chronology of the Exodus. One view holds that uh, the Exodus happened during the time of Ramses II. Uh, and the other view hap- uh, believes that uh, the Exodus happened around the time of around 1446 BC. This would be the later date, and that's the view that I hold to. Um, because there, there actually is a lot of historical evidence that there was an exodus and there was a conquest that happened during this period. Um, in particular, one of the things we look at is we look at one of the first cities that was conquered, which gives us a good dating point to the exodus itself. According to the text, uh, when we read Joshua, one of the first uh, cities that supposedly the Israelites, if they existed, one of the first cities they, they, they destroyed was a city called Jericho. And um, Jericho, we know that Jericho existed, and we know the site. It's called a tell, and a tell is really just an artificial mound of dirt that's been, you know, uh, accumulated over time. The, the, the dirt and the debris is accumulated and makes this big mound, and it's an actual city. So we know that this site called uh, Tel El Sultan is Jericho. Uh, the question then becomes, uh, is there a destruction at Jericho, just like the Bible says? Uh, well, uh, in the 1930s, Jericho was excavated by uh, an archaeologist uh, by the name of John Garstang, and Garstang in City 4 of Jericho discovered that there was a city that was destroyed exactly as the Bible uh, describes in Joshua chapter 1 and 2 and 3. And uh, so, anyway, uh, he, later later down the, down the road, uh, another archaeologist came along, Kathleen Kenyon. She was a British archaeologist, and she uh, does some more work at Jericho, and she redates the site. So... She essentially doesn't really take away the conquest necessarily in, in the in the record. She takes away the dating of it. So now we're we're forced to try to figure out what the date is. So um, how does this relate to the to the existence of Israel? Well, actually, it does greatly because if if Jericho was destroyed in City Four, then that would put the conquest at about 1446, exactly what the the earlier date says. And then we can figure out if there was a people that existed during that time. And that in, in archaeology, everything has to do with dating, has to do with trying to figure out where the dates figure in in, in the in the, ne- in the narrative. Right. And so what we're trying to figure out is when the Exodus actually happened. And uh, we think that it happened probably around 1446 BC. So this means that uh, there was the there was definitely a people uh, that existed during that time. And we also have uh, other evidence as well. Uh, the Merneptah Stele that mentions Israel by name. Um, and it's, it, in addition to that, we also have uh, Jericho itself was destroyed, um, as well as other, other artifacts that, that show that Israel did exist as a people. It's difficult for me to see how the, the critics get around the issue of these cities being destroyed in the area where the Bible says and the time that the Bible says. Now, I see how they try to shift the time and say that it was at a different time, but... Who did the destroying then if it wasn't the Israelites? So even if it's at a supposedly different time, there still has to be somebody out there right. uh, marauding and destroying these cities. So why couldn't that have been the Israelites? Exactly. 
Exactly. And the other thing, too, um, this is one of the things they made on the History Channel. They made the point that the Israelites invented their history during the Babylonian exile. That the, All of the history that, you know, there was the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, they invented these things when they're, during, their, during the Babylonian exile. But, you know, if you, if you think about that, uh, you know, you want to ask the question, well, well, who is making, who were these people that were making this story up, and why were they in exile, and where did they come from? Well, they came from Jerusalem, and even the critics would agree that Jerusalem did exist. Uh, so we have Israel mentioned by name uh, in the Maranepta Stele and in other, uh, in other, other artifacts as well. Uh, the Tel Dan Stele mentions uh, King David by name. It was discovered in 1993 in northern Israel. It mentions King David by his very name, uh, as well as something called the Moabite Stone, or the Misha Stele. This is an interesting discovery. It was found in 1868 by a German missionary, um, and it mentions the House of Israel. It also mentions the House of David, uh, King Omri, and also the name of Yahweh. But probably one of the other artifacts that mentions Israel by name directly is an actually Egyptian uh, monument that's actually very large. It's called the Merneptha Stele, and uh, it's a 10 feet high and about 5 feet wide. And it mentions, um, it basically it says this, Israel is laid waste, his seed is no more. Now what's significant about that is that it, it's... Uh, that basically Israel is identified as, as an established people at that time. Um, although it didn't indicate that Israel was permanently settled, it does place them in or around Palestine during the period which would uh, give an effect, uh, basically have an effect on the date of the Exodus. So we have got two or three direct uh, archaeological discoveries that relate to the people of Israel. These, these people did exist. Uh, David existed. Uh, not only that, we have the Tel Dan inscription, the Merineptus Stele, and the Mesha Stele. We also have in Jerusalem, outside the walls of Jerusalem, near the city of David, uh, we have a large wall uh, that existed. So, uh, again, it, it, the problem that I have when I teach this in, in, uh, in, in seminary classes is that there's just so much information, it's hard to cover it all. But uh, one more thing, in addition to establishing Israel as a people, uh, is the fact that uh, in, in Egypt we find uh, these particular style of houses, and after the, uh, after the conquest, we find the same type of house in, uh, in or around Israel, or around what, 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 we called, what we call Israel at the time. So uh, we have direct and indirect evidence that these people did exist, and that's a major that's a major part of the Christmas story is the existence of David. Because of course, when you read in the um, uh, gospel accounts, uh, Jesus, the Messiah, was related to David. He was the king. He was going to be the king who's going to be reigning in David's throne. So, mm. uh, so archaeology can pr pr provide a pretty good background uh, to the existence of these people. Now. <sighs> It still seems strange to me. Each of these discoveries was prominently published. It's not like anything is secret here. The Israeli Antiquity Society has been prominently promoting these ancient discoveries. I think because politically they see that it's important to show that the roots of the Jewish people go back far in time to the land so that they can, in their political disputes with the Palestinians, they can say, hey, look, you know, we belong here. So this is all well known. How is it that the History Channel could yet in this recent historical documentary claim that these stories were made up later? It, it, I'm flabbergasted. Well, that's well. That's just the typical view of the Old Testament. Um, is that much of it is just invented and made up? Well, not not made up, but I would say a pre the, before the uh, before the uh, you know 
the United Monarchy before David and Solomon, and they think most most scholars would agree that there was a, an existence of Israel. But anything before that, such as the Exodus or conquest or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, any of those things are are made up because and it's just the nature of history. The further you go back in time, the less data that you have. So. Um, you know, and that's not a problem with necessarily just the Old Testament, but anything, you know, the further you go back in time, the more difficult it is to establish. But in as much as we can reconstruct the past with archaeological data, uh, we can affirm that these things are not, you know, just completely taken out of midair, that they're, that they're not invented, that they are uh, grounded in a historical background. And let me just mention, too, since I didn't do this, and I know I'm, I uh, t- tend to like uh, uh, speak a lot and not explain a lot, let me, let me just explain what I think the role of archaeology is uh, in uh, biblical studies, and especially to Christians. Archaeology can do, I think, uh, at least a couple of very important things uh, in our understanding of the Bible. Number one, it can provide the historical background or the context of the Bible that we read. So whenever you're reading your Bible, archaeology can help us understand what took place and when the biblical writers lived. Uh, what did they? What kind of food did they eat? What kind of clothes did they wear? Those kinds of things. Those are the kinds of questions that archaeology can answer. And then on on very, uh, you know, not I want to say rare occasions, but on uh, very special occasions, archaeology can also it can also affirm that the text is actually giving us historical truth. And I, and I don't say, I don't, I'd be careful not to say prove the Bible, but I would say affirm the historical basis of the text. Uh, and again, what I mean by that is archaeology works like a forensic science in, in the sense that it can provide, uh, you know, material evidence of something that supposedly existed, like a person, did this person exist? Did this place exist? Uh, did this event happen? Is there any evidence that this event happened? And so in that sense, archaeology is like a forensic science. As uh, a British archaeologist, Brian Fagan, he's got a book on that called uh, Time Detectives. Archaeologists are like time detectives. And so uh, we can, uh, you know, sift through the debris of, of history and uh, establish the background of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. Hopefully that, hopefully that helps. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start to move then towards the Christmas story. You spoke about some prophecies that led up to the Christmas story. I don't know if you want to get more in-depth into some of those specifically. We've talked, actually, we've highlighted some of them on, on the show, and in particular the, the Daniel prophecy. Yes. Uh, yeah, we don't have to go there necessarily, but it, it is interesting, uh, you know, as we, as we move further, further closer to the Christmas story, mm. um, you mentioned Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 9, in which uh, the prophet Daniel uh, predicts the rise of um, Medo-Persia, uh, mm-hmm. Greece, and then Rome. And what's interesting about, at least providentially and historically, what's interesting about Greece and Rome is uh, with uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, and again, I, I need to find this because I'm not quite sure of the reference, but maybe you can help me with this. Uh, but I, I'd read an, an account, I don't, I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or if it's true, uh, of Daniel, not Daniel, but uh, Alexander the Great, actually, uh, as he marched his way across uh, Palestine and Israel, he uh, came to Jerusalem, and a priest actually brought him to the temple and showed him the prophecies that predicted his his rise uh, in the book of Daniel. And it said that uh, the, the account said that uh, Alexander the Great bowed his knee and uh, let, uh, allowed the Israelites to, to continue to worship uh, their God. He didn't destroy the temple. So that, I thought that was really interesting. But what is, what is true about Alexander the Great in the rise of Greece is that uh, in Alexander's conquest of the ancient world, he spread Koine Greek, which is uh, the kind of Greek uh, that uh, the New Testament was written in. 
and then the uh, and then the rise of Rome, of course, um, with uh, Julius Caesar becoming the emperor, and then we have the Roman period in in uh, Israel and Palestine. We have uh, the the basically the spread of Roman roads and Roman infrastructure, which also allowed uh, the gospel to spread in the early church. So at least providentially, looking back and looking at the rise of Greece and Rome, it really helped pave the way, or at least God was going to use these two empires in a mighty way to help spread the gospel, which I think is really cool providentially. So as we, now we we laying the stage here a little bit, we've got the Roman Empire controlling Palestine, and we have the end of the Old Testament period, and suddenly something happens. We've got this birth of this person. Well, actually, since I mentioned the birth, let's go into that maybe a little bit. Can you tell us, you know, I mean, you always get at Christmas time, you always get, when was Jesus really born? Yes. Any, any, uh, <laughs> you know. That's great. We're entering into a very interesting area here. Now, now Luke's, Luke's account tells us in Luke chapter 2, very clearly, Luke, of course, is a very careful historian and uh, says that, in the, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all uh, all went to be registered, everyone to his own city, and Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. The question um, is about, the, really, is this is this story made up? Is, did Luke make this up, or did this really happen? And um, what's interesting about this is that uh, we know historically about uh, Quirinius. Um, there are actually uh, two, uh, Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews mentions it as well, uh, and so the debate, actually, there's, there's a debate. There's actually a, a uh, the debate happens because uh, there seems to be a uh, conflict between Luke and Josephus. Um, there's been a couple of archaeologists who have tried to reconcile Josephus and, and Luke's account of this census. Um, but uh, archaeology has really helped us throw some light on this, on this interesting thing here. According to Luke chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus was born during the time when this census took place. Uh, and we know that he was born during the lifetime of Herod the Great, who died in about 4 B.C. So the Quirinius can't be the one whose census was dated by Josephus in about uh, A.D. 6, which is the 37th year of Caesar's defeat of Anthony at, uh, Antony at Actium, which we know is around 31 B.C. There was an archaeologist who um, who actually used to teach where I, he's, he's now passed away, but he used to teach where I went to school and got my degree in archaeology, Dr. Jerry Vardaman. Uh, Vardaman discovered the name of Quirinius on a coin in very small letters, placing him as proconsul of Syria uh, from 11 B.C. until after the death of Herod. So what this seems to indicate is that the name of Quirinius, there were actually two Quiriniuses, uh, which uh, which he believes Jesus would be born in about 12 B.C. This is what Vardaman believes. Um, the census to which Luke refers, both in the Gospel uh, and also as mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, have been discovered, have been actually illuminated by discoveries uh, in the ancient world, and there are two uh, interesting discoveries in that respect. Uh, one of them is found in the British Museum. It's known as Papyrus 904, uh, and it dates to about 104, and the other one is the, the Oxyrhynchus Papyrus, and it's uh, 255, and it dates to around AD 48. But both of these papyruses actually contain uh, censuses that actually almost exactly replicate, or they actually the wording is very similar to the uh, census that, uh, that that Luke mentions in Luke chapter two, verse one. 
so the, I think that the issue is it's it's not clear whether the census noted by Luke was part of a cycle of censuses that were taken by the Roman Empire or whether or not it was a special census. Uh, so it depends on, I guess, your view of, your view of this. But uh, the point, I guess, the end point I'm trying to make here is that uh, it is grounded in history that this that this census that this event of the the announcement of the birth of Christ happened during this uh, time in which the census took place, and we know. Uh, from archaeological and historical sources, that uh, the Romans did conduct censuses in which they would, uh, you know, count people, and it would be the massive movement of people, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, and so, uh, so Luke is a very careful historian, and, and as far as the details go, we're still working out some some of the minor details, but it is it is definitely a historical event. I, as far as the as far as the date of Christ's birth, um, right. that's uh, the, the question you originally asked. Um, I think um, it depends on which scholars you ask. I mean, I know there, among evangelical archaeologists, you know, any, it, it, the dates uh, range from, you know, anywhere from 12 B.C., that's Jerry Vardaman, anywhere to, to 3 or 4, you know, A.D. or something like that. So it depends on where they place the, um, you know, the census. There, there was an interesting article I read. Uh, it's been a couple of years now, so I hope I'm remembering it right. And I've always wondered about it, but maybe you're probably the best person to ask about this. It was an article that was claiming that the death of Herod in 4 BC was actually a mistake that in transcribing Josephus, this mistake got placed in the in the Josephus account, and that if you go back to earlier manuscripts that we've since discovered, that it actually shows that it's not 4 BC. Does yes. that ring a bell? Yes, yes, yes. And actually, uh, since we're on Josephus, let me just mention this as well to listeners um, who may be familiar with Josephus. Josephus was a first century Roman historian. He was actually a Jew, and um, he tried to commit suicide. It didn't work, and uh, because you know the, the Jewish revolt happened, and uh, he ended up becoming a citizen of the Roman Empire, and they allowed him. He kind of worked with the Romans, and uh, but so he he went to write a history of the Jews called Antiquities of the Jews, and uh, during this time, Josephus was using a Greek copy of the Old Testament. Now we know that that it's called the Septuagint. Typically, it's called the Septuagint. That there was an official Septuagint that was translated by the Jewish scribes, but there were also other Greek copies that were floating around. And so many of these uh, alleged uh, discrepancies between Josephus and the uh, New Testament accounts can be accounted for the variations found in the Greek uh, copy. That was used. So it's basically what that means was that Josephus was using a an inferior Greek copy of the Old Testament. So that's why we have a lot of the discrepancies. And as far as the, the dating of Herod, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, you got to be careful when we use Josephus because there are some there are some inaccuracies as far as his accounting goes. Uh, but I know that there's there was another issue as well that uh, that historians have used as well. Uh, one one scholar that I that I really like that when we're dealing with the dates of Christ is a, a professor at Dallas Seminary named Dr. Harold Honer, and he places the birth of Christ uh, at about 5 or 4 B.C., um, and he places also Herod's death uh, around uh, March or April of 4 B.C. Um, if, if there are any folks interested in uh, the issue of biblical chronology and the issue of dating, I would, I, w- I would turn their attention to a couple of books, very, very interesting books on the subject. Uh, one is called um, The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings, uh, by Edwin Thiel. Uh, the last name is uh, spelled uh, T-H-I-E-L-E, 
and uh, it's, it's a really, really good book on trying to recon- reconcile dates uh, in the ancient world with the biblical record. The other book that I'd recommend is called A Handbook on Biblical Chronology by uh, Jack Finnegan. Uh, Jack, J-A-C-K, Finnegan, F-I-N-E-G-A-N. Uh, two really good books that deal with uh, reconciling the biblical uh, dates with uh, historical events. Um, because it is very important, as uh, Thiel has stated, that uh, chronology is the backbone of history. So we've got to get the dates right. But again, we're not going to find ex- exact perfection in archaeology. We're going to find approximate. I think a lot of people, when, when they look at archaeology, they want exact, it's like a mathematical science, and it's not, it's not mathematical per se, it's more of an inductive science, so we're, we're dealing with probabilities in, in history. So you have right. to kind of compile your evidence and, and see uh, where the, where the weight, that, weight of the evidence falls. And so um, the New Testament account uh, so far is a very, very, you know, very grounded in history, so it's something that we can, it's, an, it's a document that we can trust. Wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with Professor Ted Wright, Professor of Old Testament and an archaeologist, about the archaeology of Christmas. So we pinned down the date fairly well. How about Bethlehem, a little town of Bethlehem? Bethlehem, yes. Well, um, the... Archaeological evidence for the Bethlehem birth, of course, he's pre- it's predicted, it's written about in uh, the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem, Ophrata, um, although you are the by no means the least among the clans of Judah, out of you shall become one, a king, a ruler who will rule over my people Israel. Um, there's actually, you know, this is where a lot of, a lot of people don't kind of feel uncomfortable by, by um, I guess, putting their... Uh, you know, uh, putting their flag here, but it certainly seems to be a lot of historical evidence, at least from the research that I've done, that this is actually true. Um, we know that in the 4th century, uh, Constantine the Great, um, now again, the debate is whether or not he, did, he truly converted or whether, whether he not, but whatever the case was, he called himself a Christian. We know his mother, Helena, was a devout believer, and uh, anyway, after his, uh, his military uh, victory, he went back to the Holy Land with his mother to to basically go and locate many ancient uh, sites. And so uh, there's actually a cave uh, in Bethlehem, a cave system, in which uh, was stated that that's where Christ was born. And uh, so they built a, a little small church over the site. And so since the time of the Byzantine era, uh, even all the way to the modern era, there's been uh, additions architecturally to this church and to this basilica that this is the actual site. And so, you know, I know that people who visit Israel and go to Bethlehem and go to this church, and some of the people may actually go there during the Christmas season. You see all the people there. There's our Greek Orthodox, and there's Armenian Orthodox, and there's all these very different, various, uh, uh, you know, uh, Catholic uh, relics and things like that. And it seems to be really gaudy, but uh, underneath all of that facade, there does seem to be uh, good evidence that there is a cave now, exactly is that the exact cave, the grotto in which Christ was born? Um, again, I, I think there's good, I mean, obviously in 300, 300 B.C. or 300 A.D., 325 A.D. or so, I think they're, they live a little closer to the time period in which it happened. So they, they possibly were privy to information that we didn't have. There may have been eyewitnesses. There may have been, uh, I would even say, a historical memory that this was the actual cave. Uh, because we know that there were, um, uh, in the ancient world, especially in the Roman Empire, there had these, uh, these uh, um, what do you call them? Uh, well, I'm trying to figure it out. They're called caravansaries, but they're actually uh, Roman outposts, and they were uh, garrisons, 
fortresses, and some of them served as inns. Some of them, people could stay in them as they would travel. And uh, the text tells us in the Gospel accounts, when Christ's parents came to the inn, there was no room for them, but they were able to secure a small cave outside of, this, uh, outside of the city area uh, on the surrounding slopes around Bethlehem. And uh, this church is actually built over one of those purported caves. There seems to be a, a lot of historical evidence that this is actually the, the site in which Christ was born. So do we have archaeological evidence for one of those Roman garrisons there in Bethlehem? Um, now, the book that I have that I, that I actually think is one of the best books on New Testament archaeology is, is another book by Jack Finnegan. I mentioned him earlier. It's called Archaeology, The Archaeology of the New Testament, uh, The Life of Jesus in the Beginning of the Early Church, uh, published by Princeton Press. Um, it has, uh, doesn't really have it has the churches. It doesn't really have any one of the garrisons. M- many of the Roman garrisons were actually outside uh, of of uh, you know Israel property been on, it would have been on the border, but there could have been an inn or a caravansary that was located in there. But uh, to my knowledge, I don't think there's any evidence uh, of one at Daisy's. Now, obviously, the the uh, city of Bethlehem itself uh, is many cities in Israel, especially Jerusalem. There, people still live there, so there very there very well could be something that exists some or a site that exists under the present city of Bethlehem that uh, has not been excavated yet okay interesting so let's see okay we got the birth and we got Bethlehem you're probably not into astronomy so you probably don't want to address the star issue no uh, there there is a guy uh, how about actually, the uh, the magi um, the magi what's yeah. the historical archaeological view of, the, of that, that story. Yes. Herodotus tells us that uh, the Magi were possibly descended from the Medes and the Persians, um, and uh, there is a, a good strong evidence that they, certainly the text says that they came from the East. Um, of course, they, some scholars have uh, been going back and forth as to try to figure out whether they were followers of Zoroaster, whether they were Zoroastrians or per, you know, Persians followed, uh, for, followed him as, as, another, as well as another god named Mithras. Um, the debate, I guess, with the Magi comes as to what you were mentioning earlier about the role of uh, astrology in the stars. And uh, you had mentioned about the star. I'm not an astronomer uh, at all, but uh, I know that there is a layman who has done a very interesting work. Uh, who I don't know if you, you all are familiar with this guy. He and I don't know really know his name, but he, the name of this the, the work he did is a DVD called The Bethlehem Star. Have you guys yeah, heard of that? Yeah, I've heard of it. It's actually a very interesting thesis. He his theory is that uh, this is an actual astronomical event that the uh, wise men, that the Magi, actually uh, saw uh, in in either Babylon or Persia, and it was the conjunction of Jupiter. And in anyway, it's a very interesting thesis. And they they make he makes the case that uh, you know, the debate is whether or not it's an actual historical event or whether or not it was a supernatural event that only the Magi saw. In his case, is that it's an actual event. And so what he did was he took uh, this software program that you, anyone can get, uh, an astronomy software program, and he plugs in some of the dates of the purported uh, birth date. I think it was 3 or 4 B.C. that we said. And uh, it comes up with this really interesting phenomenon, and you can look at it, the sky from anywhere in the world. In, in other words, you can, you can program it, uh, the program as if you were in uh, Babylon or in Persia, and you can look toward uh, Bethlehem and see what the sky would have looked like. And what he discovered in 3 BC is that Jupiter rose up. It was the brightest star in the sky, and it hovered over over Bethlehem. And and then it was uh, then 
then it was circled by another star, I think it was Venus, that crowned it. And it was a, a very interesting thesis he made there. But um, uh, I think I think he may be onto something. I don't want to put all my eggs in that basket, but I do think that there's certain, certainly something there. So hopefully then this, the story of the Magi and their interest in Zoroasterism, is it uh, connected to astrology or? Um, yes, it is. Um, and that's that's the thing that you kind of wade into some really, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> really interesting waters when you get into astrology because, you know, obviously the Old Testament condemns us trying to find any kind of message in the stars. But you got to remember these guys were Gentiles. I mean, they were, uh, you know, pagans, and certainly God could have given them certain things and, and to lead them to, to the Messiah. So it's an interesting, interesting idea. I think general revelation is enough to... To bring us knowledge of God, but it, not to Christ. I mean, not to Christ Himself. But certainly, God could have done that. I think. Any chance that these magi may have been descend, descendants or, or students of the prophet Daniel, who you know was there in Babylon and and did have all these amazing prophecies yes. about the Messiah coming, and and may have had since he was in high regard and had a lot of power there. He perhaps had some disciples and may have Absolutely. passed on some of this information. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And another, in addition to Daniel, there's also uh, scholars have made the point that they could have also, uh, the, the Balaam oracles. Uh, we know that Balaam was a Gentile prophet uh, in the Old Testament, and they could have certainly uh, followed the oracles of Balaam that could have predicted. So, uh, you know, there, but I certainly Daniel makes the most sense because we know that Daniel predicted him as well. And, uh, they could have certainly read, uh, the, the, uh, scrolls of Daniel, which would probably have been collected, uh, in the archives of Babylon. Hmm. Kirk, you've been really quiet. You, any questions while we've got our expert on the line? Yeah, actually I do have one. This isn't, uh, directly associated with the birth of Christ, but rather the other end of his life. It's a subject that that's always kind of interested me, and I'd like to get, uh, if I could, Professor Wright's quick opinion on it. The darkness that fell over the earth at the time that Christ died. How, yes. as an archaeologist, how do you, uh, approach that? The darkness. Well, obviously archaeology deals with artifacts, and so it's difficult to it's difficult to produce an artifact that's going to show, you know, something that, that you know, that the world turned dark. I guess what I'm asking is, are there any other historical records of that happening at that time other than what we have in the New Testament that would kind of back that story up? Um, not to my knowledge, there's not. Um, I'm not exactly sure if Josephus mentioned this as well. Um uh, to go back to the, to the to the gentleman I was mentioning earlier on the on the DVD, the Bethlehem Star, he does mention that he did his work uh, primarily to try to discover what the Bethlehem Star meant. But he, this is what I'm just repeating what he said just from the, from my memory. But if I remember correctly, this is, he said that basically when you look at the software, and these are based on Kepler's uh, laws of planetary motion. These are all mathematical, so they're they're not you know you can re you can rewind the clock of the stars back. In time, and what he, what he discovered was on April the third, thirty three A.D., there was a complete solar eclipse on the sixth hour in Israel. I mean, you can't get any more precise than that. Hmm. I mean, that sounds like that's a pretty accurate date, and it's April third, thirty three A.D. You can't. I mean, that's a that's a pretty precise date. Yeah, that's not an archaeological discovery. That's an astronomical thing. Although. Uh, there is a very interesting little side uh, discipline in archaeology called archaeoastronomy, and 
and uh, there's a couple of scholars who, who are very well known in doing work in that. Uh, E.C. Krupp um, has got a book called uh, Echoes of the Ancient Skies, which is a really good book on, on archaeology and astronomy. He actually has a chapter in there in his book on the Magi and the star and uh, the astronomical events uh, in the New Testament. But as far as, um, as, far as written records, um, there's none that I'm aware of uh, that mention the, the sky going black. Because obviously, I mean, when, when, even when, when full solar eclipses happen today, they only, are, they only can be seen in, in any particular location on, on the surface of the Earth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if there's, if there's someone, you know, who's writing and they're recording certain things, they're, they're not going to obviously see the whole thing. But uh, to my knowledge, I don't know of any, of any uh, first century or second century sources that mention an actual eclipse or the, the Earth going dark. I had read somewhere a little while back, I can't give you a specific reference, but uh, one of the um, history books I'd read said something about that there were um, some Roman writers uh, at the time that mentioned a a strange blackness on a certain day that coincides with when we think Christ died. And I was just, you know, they didn't give any specific references or, or who wrote these accounts, but they seemed to indicate that there were some other corroborating uh, accounts written at the time that there was a mysterious blackness at about the same time that Christ died. Wow. I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. Well, um, again, I mentioned I mentioned the work of Dr. Harold Honer. Uh, his last name is spelled H-O-E-N-E-R. And he, I, did, I think he did his doctoral dissertation at Dallas Seminary on chronological aspects of the life of Christ. And uh, he actually, interestingly, I'm just checking now, he actually has the death of Christ on exactly that date. Now, Dr. Honer, to my knowledge, was not aware of the work of this uh, layman who did this work on astronomy. But he, it very interestingly, has the exact same date uh, for the death of Christ, the mm-hmm. crucifixion, that this guy does where it has the full solar eclipse. Right. So it'd be great if I could just, if I could find out these other Roman uh, writings as well. That would really put a really strong uh, point of the death the death of Christ on April third, thirty three A.D. Yeah, I'm going to continue to look around and see if I can find something more specific on that because it would be really inter- interesting to to pin that down that someone else at that period in time mentioned that without really re- knowing what it was. Exactly. Yeah, and that would also provide further corroboration. Uh, apart from the Bible, extra-biblical evidence of an event that happened that the biblical writers record as well. Right. Well, I don't have time to look through my notes, but I I know that we've actually covered this in past show. Years ago, we talked about, as far as I know, there were two historical mentions, and I had the names of the persons who wrote. Uh, It's not incredibly specific, but it talks about an event that could be dated to AD 30 and also could, you know, like I think one of the mentions says around Passover time. So yes. again, not terribly specific, but there's only one Passover per year. And uh, if it's around the right time, it seems likely that that could be what was being mentioned. But yeah. Well, Professor Wright, can you give people contact information, website stuff? How can people find out more about you and your work? And Absolutely. And, uh, they can go to crossexamine.org, www.crossexamine.org, and um, we're actually, I do a presentation. I can uh, speak at churches, colleges, um, anywhere you can, you know, you want to ask me to speak. I do a presentation called Digging for Truth, Archaeology, Apologetics, and the Bible. Uh, Frank Turek, uh, also, who is my boss, he, he, he speaks around the country as well. 
Uh, there's articles and resources on our website. Check our blog out, our radio show, our podcast as well. And uh, we'd be glad. To, my, my email address is uh, ted at crossexamine.org, ted at crossexamine.org. I'd be glad to answer any questions you have. Well, thank you, Professor Wright, for being a guest on Evidence for Faith. And thank you for having me. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. Send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!